Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Dwayne Roller. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Dwayne Roller about his study of royal female roles in the early years of the Roman Empire, entitled Cleopatra's Daughter and Other Royal Women of the Augustan Era. Dwayne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Yes, I'm a professor emeritus of classics at The Ohio State University. I was trained as an archaeologist, and I've done a fair amount of field work in the Eastern Mediterranean. But more recently, I've turned more toward historical writing, uh, especially biographical writing, and especially focusing on the last century B.C. and the first century A.D., and I've written, in addition to what we're talking about today, uh, biographies of Cleopatra and of her son-in-law, Juba of Mauritania, and, of course, Cleopatra's daughter. It's a very interesting uh, subject matter that you've you've undertaken. As you mentioned, you've already written this biography of Cleopatra, and there's a book for which, you know, there are considerable sources. And, and yet it's fascinating, as I read your book, uh, the degree to which this, you know, how few, much fewer sources there were for the subject that you undertook. What was that led you to write this book? Was it the challenge? Uh, well, in part, it was that dealing with Cleopatra had interested me in her daughter. And about 15 years ago, even before I knew very much about Cleopatra, I had written a study of the Mauritanian kingdom, uh, which is modern Morocco and Algeria. And that's where Cleopatra's daughter ended up. But I dealt with her only briefly. And I realized that there was a lot more to say about Cleopatra Cellini. And that kind of led me to realize that there are a lot of royal women out there who were her contemporaries who really have not been studied very well. And so I felt I could develop this into a work about female royalty of that particular era. One of the things you make very clear at the start of your book is that this is not simply a matter of discussing female royalty during a particular period or a subject that has what you know might be uh, regarded as incidental significance. But you talk about it in terms of this connection of the concept of ruling women in, uh, in, in, in antiquity and the tradition that comes out of the Near East, the Eastern Mediterranean, and how it informs the concept of ruling women in Roman times. I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate a bit upon that and, and how how this tradition or and, and, and our knowledge of it or lack thereof is, is important to understanding the, the role of women as rulers and as, as figures of royalty in the Roman world. 
Well, there's a, a paradox here, and that is that the Romans hated the concept of royalty. They had had kings and queens in their early history, and then they had disposed of them in a revolution around 500 BC. And the whole idea of royalty was anathema. And in fact, the very word rex for king was kind of an obscenity. But as things developed, the Roman system simply was not working in the first century BC. And when Augustus came to power, he realized that certain changes were necessary, and so he adopted models based on the Eastern Mediterranean, where ever since the time of Alexander the Great, royalty had had a great deal of prestige. But the whole point is that in Rome, at least, you, you dare not really call it royalty, and, and the Roman women that I discuss, people like Augustus's sister Octavia, uh, Antonia, the daughter of Mark Antony, they are royalty in everything but name. But then when you go to the eastern part of the Mediterranean world, you still have this very strong tradition of kings and queens. So there's cross-fertilization between Rome and the eastern Mediterranean that creates a system where royalty is very important, but at least in the Roman part of the world, you don't speak of it as such. It's but as you explain, it's more than just this issue of the tradition of royalty. It's also this tradition of women in positions of real authority and how that was the other aspect that was much more uh, prevalent in the East than it was in Rome's own past. Yes. Well, women have a, a certain power that men don't. They, of course, are the mother of the next generation. And there's the simple biological fact that you basically always know who the mother is, but you need not know who the father is. The father need not even be alive when the child is born. So when the heir or the next generation is born, the connection is with the mother. And this gives the mother a great deal of power. And so the ruling women, the wives of the kings, had power that the kings themselves did not have. In addition, the women could provide continuity because if the king were killed on battle or away on campaign or something like that, it was the queens who provided a great deal of continuity. And we can see this in several of the examples in my book where, where the, the kings disappear early on, but the queens go on and continue. So uh, queens have a, a source of power that kings do not necessarily have. And that's the kind of thing that I tried to stress in, in, in what I was writing. I'd like to focus now on, on the first of the royal women that you address in your book, and that is Cleopatra Cellini. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about her and, and the uh, un, un, uh, unusual parentage that she had in terms of her standing in the Roman world. Yes, her parentage is very unusual because her mother, the famous Cleopatra, uh, obviously sought her partners very well. And we we know that she had liaisons with not only Mark Antony, but previously with Julius Caesar, who were the two most powerful men in Rome in their era. And so Cleopatra was very much positioning herself in terms of her children, and of course she 
assume that her empire would continue after her, but positioning herself in terms of her children to have the greatest amount of power and authority possible, a joining of East and West, a joining of Rome and of the uh, Eastern empires. But of course, everything collapsed in 30 BC. And But Cleopatra Cellini was a person of power and authority. She was the daughter of the most famous queen and the most important Roman, despite the fact that Mark Antony had self-destructed, he still was a very important person. And so something had to be done with her. She just simply couldn't be eliminated. And that's why she ended up as queen of Mauritania. I was fascinated by the fact that she was given that position of authority and did not suffer the fate of so many of the men that you describe in your book who, because of their stature, who, because of their, their lineage were threats. And thus, as, as you uh, oftentimes put it, you know, suffered suspicious deaths or died mysteriously. Yes. Well, uh, males can be a little more threat than females in this kind of situation. And, uh, Cleopatra's son was Julius Caesar, Caesarian, for example, was a real threat to Augustus, and he was eliminated. But Cleopatra Cellini was also the daughter of Mark Antony, and Antony still had a lot of power and authority in Rome, even though he had essentially been eliminated. And so you just couldn't get uh, get away with eliminating her. And it was very convenient that there was a place for her, this kingdom of Mauritania, way out in northwest Africa, where the Romans wanted a presence but didn't want direct rule, where they had an heir to the kingdom, Juba. And so you marry Cleopatra Cellini off to Juba, and essentially they live happily ever after, way off in northwest Africa. It was a, a very convenient solution that avoided offending the partisans of Antony back in Rome. There was one other aspect that you uh, referenced, and I want, I want to address it uh, because it will come up again uh, before we talk about uh, – Cleopatra Cellini's time in Mauritania, and that is the role of these connections that some of, so many of the women that you describe in your book have with the women of uh, with the Roman women themselves. You, you, you mentioned uh, there's of course uh, Augustus's wife Livia, there's his uh, sister Octavia, and how oftentimes these connections, while we don't know. You know much about the details you, you you cite as as playing a role in terms of the ability of these women to uh attain positions of authority to exercise authority to have a connection with Rome itself yes uh certainly uh it was realized early on that the, by the people in the east, the kings and queens of the East, that Roman women had a unique source of power, and so we have this situation that at the very end of her life. Cleopatra appeals to Augustus's wife and Augustus's sister. She knows that if there's any chance for her to be saved, uh, it might come through the women. And that's probably the best example that we have of the authority of these women. And there's also the fact that Mark Antony kind of lurks as a presence through all of this situation because 
Uh, he's not only the father of Cleopatra Cellini, he's the direct ancestor of three future Roman emperors. His grandson is the Emperor Claudius. So all these families are connected in ways we can't even imagine. And I have this little genealogical chart near the beginning of the book that, that places not only every almost every queen that I talk about, but all of the Roman elite, and it shows all of the differing connections. It's, it's kind of one big family. It's kind of like the European monarchies in the 19th century that were all related to Queen Victoria. How much authority did Cleopatra Cellini have in Mauritania, and, and what do we know about her time there? Well, we have to speculate to some extent. One of the basic problems in writing the history of women in antiquity and probably in many other periods is that women are usually defined in terms of the men they're connected with, which means husband or sons. And so once Cleopatra Cellini goes to Mauritania, the evidence I wouldn't say it becomes sparse, but we have no direct historical account of what happened there. But we do have some very important indications that what she was trying to do was establish her mother's kingdom kind of in exile there. She named her son Ptolemy, uh, which is a good tip-off that she's still thinking in terms of the long Ptolemaic line in Egypt that went all the way back to the first Ptolemy, the companion of Alexander. There's a great deal of Egyptian art in the capital of Mauritania. Uh, I, I've been there, it's in Algeria, and, and the museum there at Mauritanian Caesarea is just loaded with Egyptian art that she brought hundreds of miles from Alexandria. So while her husband may have had the official power, she was a person far more prestigious than he was. Uh, her husband, Juba, comes from an indigenous line in North Africa, Cleopatra Cellini could claim ancestry all the way back to people who traveled to India with Alexander the Great. So I think we have to assume that she was a person of great power and authority, but the literature, of course, is lacking. We, we have no biography of her. We have no details of it. But I think the Egyptian art, her prestige and status, naming her son Ptolemy, all of that shows that we have this kind of government in exile, her mother's kingdom reestablished in Mauritanian Caesarea. I'd like to move now to uh, the next uh, uh, figure you focus on. And, and if I uh, miss. If I mispronounce the name, please correct me. It's Glaphyra of Cappadocia. Yeah, Glaphyra. Glaphyra, excuse me. Would be better, yeah. Um, yeah, she uh, – go ahead. I, I was going to say that, that it, one of the things that, that comes across in your book is, is the fact that is that these women do not necessarily uh, follow a particular model or style of ruling. And you have with Glaphyra a, 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 some significant differences with the uh, life of Cleopatra Cellini that you described. Yes, Glaphora presumably does not come from quite the same background. As I said, Cleopatra Cellini comes from a very prestigious background. Uh, Glaphora is the daughter of a petty king, Archelaus of Cappadocia, that's south-central Turkey today. 
and his lineage only goes back four or five generations. He's kind of an example of the new royalty of the late Hellenistic period where people of power and ability and money could become petty kings. But Archelaus, her father, ended up ruling a very large territory, and so his children would be important in their own right. And as far as we know, Glaphora was his only child, which seems unusual, but we have no other evidence. So connections with other royalty in the area become exceedingly important. And she had three marriages, two to sons of Herod the Great, and one to Juba of Mauritania, of whom we've previously mentioned. So that kind of demonstrates how women can exercise power. It's not so much that she's being ruled by the men in her life, but that she is a person of power herself, and the proper connections that she makes kind of emphasize that power. In what ways do do we see, uh, do we have examples of of this power that she has outside the marriages? Did, uh, Did she leave any uh, examples of it, or do we see any connections in terms of with the with the larger Roman Empire? Well, she's probably the most elusive of my major queens, and if we didn't have the information about her in Josephus, we would practically know nothing about her. We do know that she was honored by the Athenians. Uh, we're not sure that she made it as far as Rome, but If she was honored by the Athenians, that means that Athens thought that she was an important and powerful person. And the Athenians, with their own very distinguished heritage, uh, could be very stuffy about who they gave honors to. So that's probably the best example. And the fact that she was considered suitable for marrying into other royal families and her children became important and we can trace her descendants down for uh, quite a long time. So in a sense, that's one of the roles that royal women can play. They're kind of the glue that holds these various dynasties and empires together, even though Glaphora seemingly didn't live very long and she got tangled up in the horrible politics of the Herodian family, but still she she became a very important person because of the connections that she made, and that can be emphasized by the dedication uh, to her in Athens on the Acropolis. You, you mentioned being entangled in the Herodian dynasty. Of course, she had nothing on Salome of Judea, who was a direct oh, yeah. member of that dynasty. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Well, we know a lot about the Herodians because of Josephus, this historian who wrote in the late first century AD. And he's one of the few surviving examples of what we might call regional history. That is a history uh, that doesn't focus on world events, but focuses on the fortunes of a particular area. And of course, the reason that Josephus survived when others did not is that he deals with a lot of biblical history and in the tradition of the survival of ancient literature and early modern times, biblical stuff was considered important. And so that gives us an insight into this very strange family of Herod the Great, his sister Salome, 
And of course, Glaphora would have been twice his daughter-in-law. That sounds like a a very difficult place to live, but at the same time gives us real insights as to how one of these courts functioned, especially a court that was not one of the really major ones like the Ptolemies in Egypt. I I was one of the one of the uh, aspects of that chapter that really stood out was was both the the distinctive differences that we have with being able to provide, you know, find more details about Salome, but also the uh, similarities of some of the dynamics. Uh, Again, the connections with uh, the, 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 uh, the uh, Augustus, Augustan dynasty, uh, the, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, degree to which that she was a very influential member of it, but there was a lot of dynamics involved involving marriages and how that played a role in terms of her status and her ability to uh, exercise that status. Yes, like Cleopatra, when she got in trouble, she appealed directly to the wife of Augustus. And so there, there's a dynamic here that everybody seems to know that, that you're, you're, if you're a woman, kind of a woman-to-woman relationship is more likely to get you somewhere. But again, as the wife of the king, as the most important woman in the Judean kingdom, she had a great deal of importance herself, and especially as Herod, by all accounts, seems to have gone crazier and crazier in his last years, something that may be reflected in the biblical massacre of the innocents and other details like that. Salome became the stabilizing force. She had several marriages, some worked better than others, but she was the person basically, especially in the very last years of Herod, who was very much in charge. And the Romans realized this, and and after Herod died, they, they essentially pensioned her off. They essentially gave her some land and a great deal of money and allowed her to live her last years, about a decade or so after the death of her brother, in peace and quiet. But while her brother was alive, she was the stability in the kingdom. And that gets back to what I said a while back, that women often women often offer stability that the men themselves do not have. Another thing that, that comes across in, in that chapter was the limitations they faced, even as women of, of royal descent, which is in terms of the marriages. And this is something that, you know, is, is of course, perfectly understandable for people familiar with royalty. But it also stands out the, the degree to which so many of these marriages, while we can't really uh, penetrate the inner lives, uh, nonetheless, we get a, you uh tease out the sense of which ones were marriages of convenience, which were relationships for which there might have been something there, and how even a person of Salome's standing, ultimately, it was limited in terms of what, you know, the choices that she had and what she could do in terms of following her heart. Yes, I I think they were probably all marriages of convenience. And I think the dynastic needs... uh, superseded any any personal needs. Uh, that, that's something, in a sense, it's probably difficult to understand in our era. But I think if you're a person of power and royalty, and certainly true with royalty even until recent times, that the marriages are set up in order to provide what is best for the kingdom. And that's one reason why 
when Salome wanted to marry Sileus, who was essentially the ruler of the Nabataeans, both Herod and Augustus said, forget it, because that was a destabilizing influence because Sileus, whom she probably was genuinely fond of, was a far too powerful person, and he probably had designs that neither Herod nor uh, Augustus, and even at an earlier date, Cleopatra would approve of. So they're all marriages of convenience. Uh, It's a way of stabilizing the kingdom and a way of, to be totally blunt about it, using the women to do that. And the same thing's true of the men. The same thing is true of the heirs and the male uh, successors and so forth. It's very important to hook up with someone who will provide for the needs of the kingdom, which basically means provide children that are suitable descendants to keep the kingdom running. That's why Cleopatra connects with Caesar and Antony. They're important people. Whatever else she did, we don't know and we'll never know. But in terms of producing heirs, she connects with powerful and important people. And that that's true of, I think, everybody in this era, every person of status. It really stands out when we're talking about Salome because of the information that we know about her. By contrast, yeah, exactly. talking, when you're talking about a woman like uh, Dynamis of Bosphorus, there is you you uh, it, you it's it's one where we really are talking about someone who is uh, uh, on the fringes of, of of the Roman world and and for whom we we have to really infer more from archaeology uh, what her what her experience her situation was like and yet you described there a woman who had a remarkably uh, long reign. Yes, uh, Dynamis is probably the better way to pronounce it. Uh, Yeah, as you say, she's up on the fringes. She's way up in the Crimea, the north end of the Black Sea. And we've learned a lot about her since uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union because the Russians are a lot more forthcoming about what's going up in their part of the world uh, than they used to be, and they, they tend to disseminate their material a lot better. And so we've got a lot of archaeological information about the sites and places in that part of the world that uh, unless you were actually working in the Soviet Union, you didn't have 20, 30 years ago. And it really, uh, Dynamis really shows the far extent of this system. It's really at the ends of the earth. It's a place so remote that people of the Mediterranean could hardly understand why anyone would want to live up there. But at the same time, it's a place that was very important. It was an important grain supplier to the Mediterranean world. It was an important bulwark against the uh, barbarian tribes of Central Asia. So having a presence there was important for the Romans, for the Mediterranean world. But it was like Mauritania, it was too far for the Romans to exercise direct rule. So a good stable kingdom up there was very important. The problem with Dynamis is that the uh, literary information is very confused and very contradictory, and we just kind of have to thread the best possible path in understanding why she ruled. But you're right, she ruled for a terribly long time, and her descendants remained in power for a very long time thereafter. You also 
by taking these women together, and this gets to the overall project of your book, you show how there are certain commonalities that we can reasonably infer could have been at play with, with her as well in terms of the uh, possible outreach to, to, to women in, in the Augustan court, uh, the dynamic of, of in, in effect, you know, tending to their garden and, and, and not really it demonstrating greater ambitions. Yes, uh, women in the Augustan court were probably the most liberated in the ancient world. It wouldn't cut it by modern standards, but they still had a great deal of independence, a great deal of importance, and much more, say, than classical Athens, where women were very poorly treated. And they were well-educated. And as we've seen, they corresponded with people all over the empire, especially the queens of the East. But there were limits. And uh, I have a note in the book about how uh, Livia's son, the, the emperor Tiberius, was always complaining that his mother was meddling far too much in things. And if you've seen I, Claudia, that kind of comes out there. But at the same time, women exercised a great deal of influence, and they, of course, could talk to their husbands. They could appear in public, uh, and and they could exercise an indirect political influence. They couldn't vote. They couldn't take part in legislation or policy decisions in any official way. But obviously, there was a great deal going on under the surface. And even before the period I'm talking about, we have a long history of very dynamic and important Roman women. I talk about Cornelia in my book, but there are others, Servilia, the mother of Marcus Brutus, uh, Calpurnia, the wife of Julius Caesar, women who have very prominent profiles and were very much involved in the functioning of the Roman state, but it was all unofficial. That quite that uh, point that you make about connections and, and, and influence, I think it is also plays out in another respect with regard to the record. And, I, and we've already talked a bit about this with, with, with Salome and, and Josephus, but it also plays out with another uh, person that you have in your book with the, which is uh, Pythodorus of Pontus and how we know more about her, even though she was as far off as uh, Dynamis because of her connection with uh, the geographer, with the writer Strabo. Yes, we're very lucky to have a person who seemingly was at her court and seemingly was uh, that she was kind of his patron. We don't know what the exact relationship was. But again, that this is the nature of classical studies. Uh, there's so much that we don't have, and then suddenly we get a little glimpse of something that gives us so much more evidence. And so with Pythodorus, we have this person who uh, seemingly comes from a family that was connected with her family because she too did not come from a royal background. And again, it's another example of this upward mobility of the era. Her father was of service to the Romans, had a lot of money, very important. And so uh, these people get inserted into the royalty of the period, especially after the Roman Civil War, when there's a need for such people. And so Strabo, who comes from 
the territory that she ends up in, has a long career in Rome and Egypt and elsewhere, and then goes back to Pontus, which is north-central Turkey on the Black Sea, retires there and writes. And obviously there's something going on between him and the queen, that there's some kind of patronage or support or something like that. So he gives us a lot of little details about how she ruled and how her what her self-image was that we simply do not have for a lot of these other women. Uh, that's the kind of thing we do not have for Cleopatra Cellini in Mauritania. So what more do we know then about uh uh, Pythodorus in terms of how she ruled, how she exercised power as ruler and a woman? Well, uh, we know, for example, exactly the territories that she ruled. We know about the personal connections that she made. We know, obviously, she was a patron of the arts and culture. I mean, so was Cleopatra Cellini, but we, we know that detail uh, with, with Strabo, and we can kind of construct a biography of her uh, at least down until her last years. We, we don't quite know when she died, but we can find little points in her life that go all the way along. In the case of Cleopatra Cellini, uh, we know practically nothing in terms of personal details between the time she went to Mauritania, which was probably in 25 BC, and her death 20 years later. We just have this physical evidence of the Egyptian art and so on, and, and the physical evidence of her son Ptolemy. Uh, we have nothing about the details of rule, the details of territories. Pythodorus strangely becomes a much more rounded figure than Cleopatra Cellini. But of course, Cleopatra Cellini, because of her ancestry, becomes kind of more interesting. I mean, here's the daughter of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Of course, that makes her interesting. But Pythodorus comes from an obscure family of her region, but still we know more about her. I was thinking another um, point where that contrast really comes out is between Pythodorus on the one hand and uh, two other women rulers that you discuss in the following chapter, which are Aba uh, uh, of uh, Olba and then uh, is it Mousa or Musa? Musa. Musa of, of, of Parthia, where you, you, yeah. where you know, they're, 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 if, if anything, they're just a little bit closer to Rome, and yet what we know about them is, is far less by comparison. Yeah, with, with, with Abba, Aba, you know, who knows? Uh, it's simply one sentence in Strabo that, that's very, very revealing because she obviously had some kind of client relationship with both Antony and Cleopatra, and not Antony and Cleopatra as a couple, but Antony as the representative of Rome, Cleopatra as queen of Egypt. And she was this priestess queen, which gives us an insight into uh, her own power. There are a lot of these temple states in Asia Minor, and most of them are ruled by men, but here's someone who's going to be a priestess queen. Uh, we don't even have the word for that in Greek. We can construct it, but we don't have it documented. That's how rare this title is. And a person who obviously, we, we just get this glimpse, like a window opening for a minute, about things going on, that there's much more going on than we can ever imagine, that a woman could become so powerful. 
and then she vanishes from the scene. She may have overstepped her authority. She may have died naturally. Who knows? In the case of Musa, uh, we go back to Josephus again, who provides so many different details in this strange little tale of uh, an Italian slave girl who ended up being queen of Parthia, but again uh, seems to have gone down a uh, very strange path of in, of having incest with her son to manipulate uh, the rule of Parthia. It's a strange, almost novelistic tale. Uh, not all of it may be true. Some of it may be slander. But with both these women, Abba and Musa, it gives us an insight. As I said, there's a lot going on out there we don't know. And because of the tendency to write less about women, because history tends to be male-dominated, written by men about men, these two women give us a little glimpse of what we'll never know about the, the true dynamics of the era and place. And they're important in another respect, as you go on to explain, because while they may be at best hazy, fig, some of them may be at best hazy figures for us, mm-hmm. for their contemporaries, their contemporary world, they might have been much better known and, and almost certainly served as models or uh, precedents for concepts of women, uh, of royal women uh, in, in positions of authority. I was wondering if you could explain a bit uh, the you know, how that dynamic worked. I mean, these, these women in the context of the Roman world, we've already talked, you've already talked a little bit about the the, the relationships. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate a bit more about how Romans were, 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 uh, you know, connecting that with this uh, emerging concept of, of imperial women in, in authority. Well, it's not only imperial women, I think it's generally, but, but as I said, the Romans, had this paradoxical situation. They destroyed Cleopatra, but they were very much influenced by her. And she became kind of the symbol of a powerful woman. And as long as she wasn't a threat to Rome, (coughs) excuse me, that was okay. But we have things like in Rome of the era of Cleopatra, we have sculpture that indicates that her hairstyle was imitated, Uh, that that Egyptian jewelry and Egyptian other material arts were imitated in Rome. So I think for all aristocratic women, not just those right at the top, Cleopatra was a powerful force who created a kind of lifestyle, if you will, but then she becomes a threat to Rome and has to be destroyed. And I expect that's true of these other women too, the Pythodorus and Salome and so on. They probably were role models for people in the world that they influenced, but that just gets so far from anything we have evidence for that we can just speculate about the possibility and not really provide any details. But you, one of the things you do in your book is you show the pathways in which it could have happened, the degree to which yeah. they're having those uh, the, the contact. Uh, as you point out, you know Cleopatra uh, the seventh is in Rome, uh, so these these are women who are are, are very. You, you can see how it could happen, and, and how such uh, connections and and, and uh, information was possible. 
Yes, the, the, there there was personal contact. Uh, we know Cleopatra was in uh, Rome more than once. She was there when Julius Caesar died. She was there trying to assert her own power. Cleopatra Cellini, of course, grew up in Rome, and other others of the women were probably in Rome at one one time or another. We know that uh, uh, Dynamis was probably in Rome, Pythodorus, certainly. So connecting yourself to the Roman elite is a, an important thing about your own survival. And there is going to be influence. These women were housed in the houses of the Roman elite. Salome uh, went to Rome when her brother died and seems to have stayed there for some time. Some of her children stayed in Rome. So again, it's the matter of cross-fertilization. The, the royal women of the East spend a lot of time in the households of the aristocratic women of Rome, and it's perfectly natural that there's going to be influence really in in both directions uh it's politically correct for the royal women to be as roman as they can be and it's politically correct in a very discreet way for the roman aristocratic women to adopt some of the trappings of royalty in in their own lives well we've taken up a lot of your time but before we go could you tell us what you're working on now Yes, I'm working on a uh, biography of the Pontic kingdom before Pythodorus, and that's the famous Mithridatic dynasty, of which is mentioned a number of times in my, my book, that after the time of Alexander the Great, the north-central part of Anatolia, or of Turkey, Asia Minor, became a localized kingdom under several kings, all of whom were named Mithridates, and the most famous was the last one. And of course, he was the grandfather of Dynamis, so he is an indirect character in Cleopatra's daughter. And he, he was a famous personality, and he entered popular culture. Uh, even today, there, there are operas and literary treatments of Mithridates. Uh, Mozart has a Mithridate Re de Ponto, one of his early operas. So he's an important cultural figure. So this kind of, even though it's not intended like that, will take the ancestry of some of my queens in a different direction, but once again back to the time of Alexander the Great. Well, it sounds like a very worthy project. Yeah, well, it's fun to do. <laughs> well, Dwayne Roller, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.